We would like to welcome you to today's sermon delivered by Pastor Stuart Guthrie. We hope that it challenges, strengthens, and encourages your walk in the Lord. So what I've decided is to really swing into the book of First Peter. Um, I believe it's a, a, a powerful book, one that uh, is beneficial for us, um, can encourage us as believers, um, especially as we approach the latter days. Uh, as God has told us, days will get worse and worse and worse. And, and so what better way to be encouraged than to be encouraged through the book of First Peter? Um, and so it's a challenging book, not only for believers, but also unbelievers. And so today we'll be beginning with just the first few verses of the book of 1 Peter. But don't let that fool you. It's, it's power-packed, it's full, and I'm not even going to be able to uh, expound all that I could on just the first two verses. And, but, uh, but before we jump into that, I want us to begin to look at the what, the who, the where, the when, and the why of 1 Peter, kind of the context of the book. And so let's get started by looking first at the, the who of the book. And so... Who wrote the book of 1 Peter? Well, the, the Apostle Peter, I believe, is the author of this book. Now, where many scholars have a problem believing that a fisherman who primarily spoke Aramaic for the most part could produce such a, a fabulous book in Greek. Now, I don't have a problem believing this because I believe that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the creator of the universe could obviously use anyone in any fashion, shape, or form to produce the book that we have, First Peter. And so I don't find it very hard at all to understand how it is possible that Peter could be the writer of First Peter. Um, the, but the reality is, is most scholars agree that Peter is the author of the book. And so what is, what is First Peter about well, First Peter is a book that's really written to exhort Christians living uh, in the last days, um, in that time that were being persecuted. But they, his desire was that they live in accordance with the hope that they had received in Jesus Christ. And the book gives guidance to those believers to help them in their relationship with one another and really points us to the fact that, that in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of trials and hardship, is that Jesus Christ gives us hope. And as we live in a world that is in deep despair, Peter will point us in a direction as to where we can find a true peace and a true hope. And so this book, if, you, if you're not aware of, was written um, in the last chapter. It tells us where Peter was when he wrote it. It says that he was in Babylon. Uh, now the question is, is, was this the Babylon that's referred to in the historical city of Mesopotamia? I don't think so. I think it's referring to Rome. It's interesting because as we as we study, it's kind of a code name that Paul that Peter uses to protect the believers in Rome, just in case the Roman authorities were to have found the letter. And so it's uh, I believe that he's in Rome when he writes this. The book was written in A.D. 62 and 63. This is just before Nero's persecution, and which followed the great fire that ravaged Rome in the summer of A.D. 64. But the question is, why? Why, why write the book of 1 Peter? Well, 1 Peter was written really to encourage, again, believers, Jews and Gentiles, to suffer for the sake of Christ. Uh, these new and young believers were living in a time that, and in a society 
where the pagans were hostile to Christians and the, to the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel. In chapter 4, a matter of fact, it says, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. The book is about dealing with trials and sufferings and to keep in mind our hope of salvation that truly only comes from Jesus Christ. And while I believe that we are living in the last of the last days, these messages over the next several weeks will prepare us for the hard times that lay ahead. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But there is a reality that Christians all across the world are suffering for their relationship and, their, and for their Savior, Jesus Christ. Many Christians worldwide, this is their reality, where it may not be ours. And so I don't want to just be informational, but... Uh, and so let's begin by looking at this new book First um, Peter by, by really digging into the text. So if you will, let's turn there to First Peter chapter 1. I hope some of that information was helpful to you to kind of set the stage for where First Peter is coming in. One thing that would really be helpful as we study through the book is for you to read through the book over the next several weeks. Uh, it's only five chapters. If you read through it, it'll take you about 15 and a half minutes. Um, if you read through that one chapter a day, every day of the week, you'll have read through the book before Sunday. And if you do that all the way through, you'll have a good understanding of the first book of Peter. And so <clears throat> I think it'll be a tremendous help to you if you do that. Here's an outline of the book of First Peter. And my hope is that that it help you put together the portions of the book. It's divided really into six sections. First is the salutation. Uh, chapters 1, verses 1 to 2, then we'll look at that today. And then the next section will be the Christian salvation. And we'll fill in each one of those, the Christian's relationships, the Christian's suffering and service, the Christian's discipline, and then finally we'll conclude with the conclusion. And so today we're simply going to look at the introduction, the salutation. And so let's begin, if you will, by reading First Peter 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, there are three things that I would like to gather from the text this morning. You can write them down on the back of your bulletin if you'd like. Keep up with them. Sometimes I encourage you to even put a little notebook together and keep it as we work through the book. But first, we're going to look at the description of Peter. The description of Peter. Second, we're going to look at the description of his readers. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the description of God's work. So I wanted to start out this morning by talking about failure. Um, Failure is something that each one of us experiences in life. It's a normal thing that we, that we deal with in everyday life. There's no one in this room that has not failed or will not fail as we move forward in life. And, and really, we see it throughout Scripture of people who we highly respect failing all the time. The Apostle Paul failed, it said in Scripture. Um, every one of the twelve apostles failed. David, the greatest king, failed, a man after God's very own heart. 
Moses, a giant among Israel, a giver of the law, the deliverer of the people, yes, he failed. Jacob, the father of Israel, failed. Uh, Isaac, the son of promise, he, he failed. Abraham, the father of the faith, a prototype to those that would be saved by righteousness through faith, failed. And even our first partners, I mean our first parents, Adam and Eve, they failed. Even in their perfection, they failed. The reality is, is everybody in this room at some point has failed. We all have something in common this morning. And I think it's a great way to look at the description of Peter. It's to begin to look at his life and who he was. And so let's begin by number one, we see the description of Peter. The reason I start out talking about failures is because I think Peter is a great example for all of us to learn from. I can't help but think of all of the failures that this man had. Yet a pillar of the faith, one that failed quite often. It's a bad thing to to maybe look at his failures, but I don't think so. I think we can learn great lessons from his failures. I know as a father, I want my kids to learn from my failures, right? I mean, I look at my dad and and uh, while he's a great father, he's made some mistakes, and, and I've learned from his mistakes. And he's, he's taught me not to do things that he's done that he's failed at. And I do the same for my kids. And so I think when we look at the book of First Peter, as we begin to describe the description of Peter, we can look at his failures, and we can really learn. And it can encourage us to realize that, man, if this man could fail and still be used by God in mighty ways. If you're here this morning and you've been failing lately, oh, guess what? God can still use you because we worship a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God that wants to give you a second chance today. And so we begin by first looking at 1 Peter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we see that the book of 1 Peter quickly gives us the author of this book. It's named after himself, Peter. Uh, it's very normal in that day to begin a letter with their name starting off. Now, in our day, um, we don't typically start out a letter with our name. We started out with someone else's. So, uh, you know, I've sent out several letters this week, and at the end of the letter, I signed, In Christ, Stuart Guthrie. And so um, they don't have to go to the end of the letter to see who wrote this letter. They typically, in the, they, they wrote their name in the very beginnings. And so Simon Peter, also known as Cephas, was one of the first followers of Jesus Christ. He, he was really an opinionated, uh, passionate disciple. A matter of fact, Peter was one of the closest friends of Christ, an apostle and a pillar of the church. It says that he's an apostle. Now, um, I'm not going to get into great detail, but I do want to specify that as one of the apostles, he was the leader of the apostle. If we look at, uh, if we look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, it, it begins to describe the apostles. It lists the 12. And Peter's always placed first. And so you can see that in Matthew 10. You can see that in Mark 3, 6. You can see that in Luke 6, 14. And you can also see it in Acts 1, 13. Every time Peter is always listed first, which shows that he was really uh, expressing that he is the leader of the 12. And so this man, Peter, is an apostle. He's a leader. He's a pillar of the faith. One, one writer describes Peter as an, an enthusiastic, strong-willed, impulsive, at times brash. But all of his strengths, Peter had several failings in his life. 
Still, the Lord chose him and continued to mold him and make him into exactly who he wanted him to be. Isn't that encouraging? That each one of us, even though we may fail, God can still mold us and use those failures to make us into who he wants us to be. Peter was a very interesting guy, a truly a man of God that was used in countless ways while doing so much good, even though he seemed to have a lot of failures. And I don't know if, if he's, that he had a lot of failures or is that we resonate with his failures because many times we do the very things that he's done. He was named by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you remember, he called him the rock. Peter is a man known for doing great things while serving the Lord. Do you remember this story? There, Peter, in the middle of the lake, Jesus is walking on the water. They're scared to death. They're positive it's a ghost. Jesus tells them, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. And Peter, the bold one, begins to do what? Step right out of the boat and he begins to walk on water. You recall Luke chapter 5? There they've been out fishing all night. Peter, this professional fisherman, knows that you don't fish in the daytime. So he's out all night. They've caught nothing. They get back. They've cleaned up their nets. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, how about take me out in the boat? So he loads up the boat and he goes out and Jesus says, hey, throw out your nets. And could you imagine, Peter? Man, listen, I, Jesus, you may got all this other stuff, but fishing doesn't happen in the daytime. You know, I, we're not going to catch anything. But out of obedience, and he throws the nets. And the scripture tells us in Luke 5, 6 to 8, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in order it, uh, in, in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Peter saw some amazing things. He had great reason to have great faith. How about our Lord in the garden? There that night they across the old rugged Kidron Valley, down that rugged valley, back up there to the Olive Garden, where even today you can still see some of the, the olive trees. It's a beautiful place. Peter's there. Judas the traitor comes and gives Jesus a kiss. And the soldiers come to capture Jesus. And Peter's not having anything to do with it. He pulls out his sword and whacks off the ear of Malchus. He's a brave, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And there at the Caesarea Philippi, that beautiful pool of water, uh, up on that hill, there's a huge hole, a cave. Uh, and Jesus comes and he begins to question Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, and blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter is a faithful man. But this same man that we see living faith is the same man that we always see failing. Doesn't that resonate with us? Sometimes we can feel like, yes, we're, we're doing so well in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's such inconsistency in our lives. 
And so many times we find ourselves failing, going back to the very things that we know we ought not be going back to. He was God's man. He was in the inner circle with James and John. He, they were the only ones allowed on the transfigurate, the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the only ones there in Mark 5.37 when Jesus said to the little girl, Get up, arise. This Peter was hand-picked. A sent one. He was one of Christ, in which said, You, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. You are the Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Peter's not whom the church is built on, but Christ. He's not the first pope. Ephesians 2.20 says, Christ is that cornerstone. Peter was a special character. He was a special guy that we can learn tremendous amounts from, that we can truly respect because we can resonate with a man who fails. Because we too fail often. Some of you think that your life has gone so wrong, that you failed so often and so much, that you can't be used in spite of you. But I tell you, he can use you in spite of you. He can use me in spite of me. Though Peter denied Christ three times, we see God using him for great things. He just didn't throw the towel in on Peter, did he? No, he, with patience, pursued after Peter. And you shouldn't throw the towel in on yourself or others either, because they've failed. God is very capable of taking something that looks so ugly and producing something so beautiful. Peter is a great reminder for us. That old rugged, rough, careless fisherman in the eyes of Jesus was a firm, faithful rock on which he could work. And we can live our lives in failures, or we can be like Peter, and we can repent. We can turn back to God, and we can allow God to use us in miraculous ways to form and to mold and to patiently work in us so that we can accomplish what it is that God wants to accomplish through us for His glory and for His honor. For His honor. We were reading His letter. God used Him even after He failed. And God will use you even after you fail if you'll just repent and turn back to Him. A great reminder of the description of Peter. But not only do we see a description of Peter, we see a description of his readers. Peter is writing this letter to a certain people in a certain time for a certain purpose, but one that transcends to each one of us even here this morning. He's writing them to encourage, to exhort them to live in light of the salvation which they have that's founded in Jesus Christ. Who are they? Well, we have a description of them in part one here of the verse. It says, To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Now, all of these places that are listed are, are really places within the Roman providence. Um, which is modern-day Turkey, and to be more specific, northern Turkey, if you want to be exact. And while all those places are important, those aren't the areas I want to focus on. What I want to focus on are the words aliens, scattered, and chosen. Peter calls them aliens. Now, when we talk about aliens, they're not kind of like coming down from outer space. 
but rather they are aliens that, have, that are not of a place in which they can call home. These were people that are considered aliens and strangers. And as we look at, at, at chapter 2, verse 11, he continues that theory all the way through the book. The Greek word used here means a person from whom a period of time lives in a place which is not his normal residence. And so that's what it means when it says aliens. Peter is making it clear to those that are believers that they are strangers and that they are not residents. In a time when Christianity was dealt with on a hostile level, uh, they seemed to be strangers in a land that had nothing to do with whom they seemed to be about. Listen, we as American people are blessed. No one's going to negate that fact. We are so blessed that we can become so picky and so uh, prideful and spoiled that we can miss the fact that while we, yes, have freedom and we have comfort, you and I can forget that this is not our home. This is not our home. And these people, they were aliens, and so were we. The rest of Christians across the world, they, they understand this right now. They understand that they live as aliens and strangers because they are physically suffering. The persecuted church is a real deal. There are people that are suffering every day. Churches are being burnt. People are being killed for their faith. They're being beaten. They're being martyred. And the reality is, is they feel like strangers and aliens. And while we may not feel like strangers and aliens to the fullest extent today, there may be a time in this country when it's coming. Because I don't know about you, at 40 years old, I see a lot of changes in the last 10 years of Christianity. I see a lot of changes, and we're not, we're not as open as we used to be about our faith. We're more open about sin than we are who we are in Christ. And there is a separation between the world and Christianity today. Every other religion is fine to the world, but we speak of Jesus Christ and something starts happening. That's what's so interesting about Super Bowl and, and all these things where the underdogs are winning and the coaches are getting up there and they're praising their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These are, these are important times in which God is still has a remnant everywhere. How many millions and of people were watching that. How offensive that is to so many. Listen, Christians are only temporary residents on earth, and we must not let our lives be shaped by its interest. There is no new teaching here. Even from the Old Testament, we see ideas of this. Here in Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says this, All these died in faith. This is the hall of faith, speaking of those that were of faith in the Old Testament. All these died in faith without receiving a promise, without receiving the promise. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they too felt like strangers and exiles on earth. Even those in the hall of faith admitted they were aliens and strangers. And so we are not the only ones like Peter in his failures, but those whom he is writing to here as strangers. We too should be strangers. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you a stranger? Or are you completely comfortable in your life, in your walk with the Lord, in your Christianity? Listen, Christ was an alien. 
They hung him on a cross. Many disciples were killed for their faith. They were strangers. But let us not forget the salvation that we have and the hope we have in Christ, the promised place that's been prepared for each one of us that faithfully trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am there, you may be also. That is our home. That is our hope. That is our expectation. And everything we do in this world should point us to that one. Because ultimately, we are living for eternity now as Christians. He who has the Son has the life in this present tense. Not will have or might have, but has eternal life. This old preacher is living for eternity right now. Kill the flesh, that's fine, no problem. I'm living for eternity with Jesus. Praise the Lord. And we can glory in that. Have you made this place your home? Or are you strangers? Or do you simply fit in too well? The Christian life is not something that we just fit into, folks. It's something we are. And the people are watching us every day that are outside of these church walls wondering, are you a part-time Christian or are you a full-time Christian? Are you a part-time or are you a full-timer? And if you're a full-timer, folks, this is not our home. We are simply aliens and strangers. As time goes on, the Bible tells us that times will change. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, prideful, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, living without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, lovers of, uh, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but yet denying the power. And the Bible tells us it had nothing to do with these people. But so many times, for the sake of Christianity, we want to fit in. We want to partner up with people so we can win them to Christ. Listen, the Bible says it had nothing to do with these people. We have no partnership with the world. That doesn't mean we, ha- we have to go out and tell them about the hope of Jesus. But we have to be careful to be in the world, but not of the world. And so if we're not careful, our world will become to look like this is our home. And we will begin to function and form in that manner. Do you fit in? Or are you an outcast? Time started bad with Christ and they will end bad when Christ comes back. It's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Now I know we live in a time when people say, well the world's getting better. No, it's not getting better. It's going to get worse. Birth pangs are coming. The exhortation for all of us today is to choose today whom we will serve. Will we serve the Lord Jesus Christ or will we serve man? Listen, don't miss it says here that, uh, that they were chosen, the doctrine of election. Now, I'm not going to go real deep into this doctrine, uh, but you will at some point in your life and your walk with Christ will have to decide where you stand as a follower of Christ. Now, I've debated several years on this topic, but I typically don't debate anymore. I just agree to disagree with folks. And, and so you'll have to decide where you fall on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And I want you to understand there are godly people on both sides of this. There are godly people on both sides. You may have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay as well. As you begin to study and learn the scriptures, you will come across somewhere in your walk and you will have to take a stance. These aliens and strangers, scripture says they're chosen. 
the fact of, of it is, is that they are aliens on this earth because before the foundations of the world, they were chosen by God. And God chose them and wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. Every believer, his name is in the Lamb's book of life. Every one of you um, uh, that have become a Christian have been chosen. I don't want you to miss that. You're chosen by God. Now, my Calvinist friends, they will claim that some God has chosen for heaven and some he did not choose, and so therefore they go to hell. Now, you will be bombarded with philosophical ideas and illustrations of how this takes place, but let me tell you something. The Bible that I read doesn't teach that God sends people to hell. People send themselves to hell. God has provided a venue in which they can be saved. Now, he predestines us. We find that in Ephesians 1. It says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things together after his counsel of his own will. Listen, God is an all-knowing God. And the desire of God in the Bible is extremely clear. He desires not to send people to hell, but to see them come all to repentance. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, wishing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is God's heart cry. 1 John 2, 2, For he himself is the propitiation of our sins, not only for ours, but also of the whole world. Listen, the atonement's not limited as the Calvinists teach. I don't believe. Not one drop of blood was, that shed was wasted. Every single person that will ever enter into eternity was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and not one drop was wasted. Why? Because God knows all things. When Christ went to that cross, he died for the elect. And the elect God knew because he based that election, I believe, off of his, uh, the, the foreknowledge of who would choose him. God didn't remove our free will, otherwise we'd be robots and puppets on a string. Listen, if you guys go to hell, it's your own fault. Because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God loved you so much that he sent his son into the world that you might have life. He's provided a way that you could have salvation. And if you reject that salvation, the Bible says you will be separated for eternity. You will be separated for eternity. Listen, if God is drawing you to himself, you better heed that call because each one of us will give an account. And because someone has told you God chooses some for heaven and hell doesn't mean you have no responsibility. Listen, I understand the free will of man and the sovereignty of God cross somewhere way above my pay grade. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm a Calvinian. Okay, I'm not a Calvinist and I'm not an Arminian. I'm going to preach like an Arminian, but I'm going to walk away like a Calvinist. Because I understand that I can only be a, 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 a word of hope for people. I can only tell them the hope of Jesus Christ. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit to lead people to salvation, not me. The cross, listen, is sufficient for every single person on this earth. But it's only efficient to those who would believe, those that would receive him. 1 Timothy 2, 3 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved 
and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wishes that all would be saved. This is the cry of God's heart. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And the very popular John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. The chosen are those that choose Christ. The whosoever will and the whosoever won't. The heart cry of God is that none perish, but those that are in Christ, listen, are sealed. They are the elect. And that's why we can believe in eternal security as a Christian. So yes, you should be yet of another world if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You should be an alien and you should be scattered so that we can share the hope of Jesus Christ. You know, as I look at my life as a Christian, and I wonder why God has sent me into so many different places over the last 10 years of my life. And then I'm reminded of all of the opportunities that I've had from coast to coast to share my faith, all the way up into the Himalayas of India to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, there in Delhi and Punjab and Amritsar and Udampur. God scatters us. Because we are not residents to this world and He can use us wherever we are to share the hope of Jesus. Why does God have men in all of these different places so that we can share the hope of Christ? Share your faith. Listen as if God is going to save every man on this earth. Because that's the heart of God and that's what He calls us to do as Christians. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Listen, the reality is, is God wants us to be faithful. And those who are in Christ are the chosen. And I believe that God can save every single soul if they would simply repent and turn to Christ and believe. We see the description of Peter. We see the description of his readers, those chosen as aliens scattered. And we see, lastly, the description of God's work. We've heard of the chosen, but now Peter really gives us a good understanding of just how that happens. It reads, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. This passage here brings to light the triunity of God. We see God the Father, we see God the Holy Spirit, and we see God the Son, Jesus Christ. You are saved and a believer apart from works, period. Based upon the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working together in unison. God, Jesus Christ, came, lived a, a life on this earth in human flesh, fully God, fully man. Lived perfectly, went to the cross, died, was buried, and three days later rose again and sent to the right hand of the Father. And in John 14, he says, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And he comes in and he draws you to himself so that you are able to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the foreknowledge of God, he knew that you would receive him or reject him. He's all-knowing. We can't take that away from God. But listen, you can't be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit because you're dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to save yourself. Listen, dead people don't respond. At least I've never seen one respond in all the funerals that I've ever preached. 
You are dead and I am dead until the Holy Spirit draws us to himself. Now, God is not going to make you choose him. He will draw you to himself. But you will have to choose this day whom you serve. Listen, it's by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we can be saved. And I'm not going to limit that who it might be. I'm going to preach the word again like an Arminian, and I'm going to trust God like a Calvinist. I'm going to tell you to believe the Lord Jesus Christ today by the saving power of Jesus while trusting the Spirit of God is working in someone's life because God knows you better than I do. But apart from the work of the Spirit, you and I can't change. I've been sick all week. I feel much better today. My head was so full of drainage in my ears. I I couldn't hear. I couldn't think. And Friday came along, and you know what Friday is. It's time to go to Good News Club to be with the kids. And guess what? I didn't want to be there. I was sitting in my office, and I'm going, man, I I just don't feel well. I don't want to go. And then I remembered, okay, James is not feeling well. He's not sick, so he's not going to be able to be there. And I remember, okay, well, that just leaves Miss Susan, poor Miss Susan there with 30 kids. That ain't going to be good. So I called Annabelle and Lana and said, hey, we need to go. Get up and get dressed and get your stuff ready. Let's go. And so I printed out the stuff. We went in, and even though I didn't feel well, I went and I was able to teach on the book of Jonah and talked about Jonah and his rebellion and, you know, God and his grace and his mercy Even though I didn't want to be there, God was working. Because I had the opportunity to lead three young girls to Christ. And let me tell you what, God's doing some amazing work in people's lives. It got nothing to do with me. I sat there with my daughter Annabelle at the table, and these three girls responded to the gospel so clearly, so ready. God had been working in their lives. God had been preparing them. The Holy Spirit was working and they were ready. And God just needed a willing vessel. And if I wouldn't have been there, I believe Susan would have had that opportunity because that's how ready they were. It's a blessing, isn't it? If you feel that God is calling you to believe, don't brush it off. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He, he makes you very aware of your lostness. And if you realize that you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. See, when I met with these girls, I asked them if you were to get to heaven. And God said, why should I left you in heaven? What would you say? They'd say, well, I've, my good has outweighed my bad. That's what one girl said. The other girl said, well, um, because I read my Bible, everything was a works-based salvation. And I began to walk them from beginning to end. And I began to show them that Scripture doesn't teach that we're saved by works but by faith in Christ alone. And I begin to point them to Christ. I begin to show them what Jesus Christ did for them and that he paid their penalty. And I asked them, listen, if you could be good, ag- good enough, then why did Jesus need to die on the cross? And they, all three of them said, he didn't. And I said, so now you see your need for Christ. And they said, yes, sir. What an amazing truth. We're not saved by our works. Today is the day of salvation. Don't look at your works as something that grants you favor of God. It's a result of what God is doing in our hearts. Any good that we're able to produce, God should receive the glory. Don't take for granted the breath you have right now in your lungs. So to push away the call of God in your life, the work of the Holy Spirit. We see in people in Acts resisting the Holy Spirit.
Now, a Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist, I, um, would say that they believe in irresistible grace. That you can't resist the Spirit's call. I disagree. I think in Acts 7.51 it says, You stiff-necked people and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers always resisting the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're here this morning, I want you to understand that you can resist the call of God, the knock on your heart to receive Jesus Christ. And the more you resist that, the less that knock will get till it become completely quiet and the Lord Jesus Christ could harden your heart and turn you over to a depraved mind. Listen, don't, don't ignore it. If God is touching on your heart today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day in which you can trust in Jesus Christ. It takes the Holy Spirit sanctifying you to make you more and more into the image of Christ. It takes the, the Jesus Christ dying on the cross at Calvary to shed his sinless blood for you so that you could be forgiven. And because of all of this, Peter ends this great salutation, these powerful two verses with may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Listen, if you come this morning, you're not at peace with God. Peter offers you grace and peace to the fullest measure. And that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And today you can do that. Today you can make Christ your Savior by trusting in Him. And you too can become an alien a stranger to this world because of a Savior like Jesus Christ. Can you say today I'm at peace with God because you won't be at peace with God. You won't experience the peace of God until you are at peace with God. Would you do that today? Let's trust in Christ. Let's pray.